Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hello. Hello. Today on the show, we are going to continue our Doctors Who Kill series by speaking about Dr. Harold Frederick Shipman. And then they did something called, he was known to acquaintances actually as Fred Shipman. I, you know, who cares? But just so you know, Fred, not Harold. <laughs> who cares? <laughs> He was an English general practitioner who is believed to have been one of the most prolific serial killers in modern history, actually. And once you hear the full scope of the story, you'll probably agree. This is going to be more than one episode. So we'll start now and end next week, most likely. He's not someone who's talked about very often. I know. I think that's interesting. And maybe that's because he's British and not American. I don't know. You maybe. know we, we do have a bias over here about talking about ourselves. Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> That's one of our narcissistic issues mm -hmm. in this country. Uh, on January 31st, 2000, he was found guilty of murdering 15 patients under his care. His total number of victims is approximately 250. Uh, I'm guessing probably twice that many. We just don't know. But I can tell you that next time I'll go a little bit more into the inquiry that was created about this case uh, after he was convicted and went to prison. They did a massive inquiry into all of his cases. It was like a clinical practice audit is what they called it. And it's 156 pages of interesting stuff. And unfortunately, it's shown a light on a lot of very difficult things that we don't want to believe about the medical industry. But more on that later. So Shipman was sentenced to life imprisonment uh, with a recommendation of never being released. He died by suicide. He hung himself in his cell at HM Prison Wakefield, West Yorkshire on January 13th in 2004, which was one day before his 50th birthday. Shipman Inquiry, a two-year-long investigation of all the deaths certified by Shipman. So that's different than the clinical audit. They did... The audit of everyone, I think, I believe he ever treated. And then they had the inquiry, which was just of the deaths he certified. And the inquiry identified 218 victims and estimated his total victim count as 250, which is, and they were about 80% of whom were elderly women. Yeah, well, I mean, they can go missing easier. Yeah, I, I, obviously some of the bias that we work on in our world uh, served to allow him to do this for 20 years because... Well, we all, and you know, as we talk about this case, we'll also figure out that there was, you know, maybe there was a certain population he was interested in for yeah. a reason. Oh, absolutely. Shipman's youngest confirmed victim was a 41-year-old man, although suspicions later uh, in the audit and the inquiry and stuff stated that he may have killed someone as young as four. So, but he had, as, a, as most serial killers do, he had a profile victim, so... And that's your 80% that you got there. Mm -hmm. um, I did want to provide just a little bit of a, a definition about clinicide, because that's what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So clinicide is the unnatural death of multiple patients in the course of treatment by a doctor. And it's not something that's always been around or noticed. It, it's kind of become a phenomenon. So medical murder has, and now there's this clinicide word. 
So I guess the role model for this would be Dr. Marcel Petois, I believe. He's the worst serial killer in French history, and maybe we'll do an episode on him as we go through the Doctors That Kill stuff. And then Dr. Shipman was Britain's worst serial killer. And then uh, in Zimbabwe, there was actually Dr. Michael Swago killed 60 patients as well. So, But everybody had different motivations and different uh, victimology from what I could tell from a cursory glance at those cases. So at some level, these doctors have an awareness of, you know, what they're doing countered by an over like a refusal to acknowledge the implications or desist from, from further treatment or, or stopping what they're doing. So they know what they're doing. They just don't stop or can't or whatever that can be argued. Uh, many clinical doctors have extreme narcissistic personalities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A grandiose view of their own capability and an inability to accept that they could be criticized or need assistance from other doctors, which we'll see in Dr. Shipman. And uh, such doctors, like Dr. Shipman, develop a God complex and get a vicarious thrill out of ending the suffering and determining whether a person lives or dies. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see that here. Dr. Shipman, Fred. Fred is no different. That's my intro. I'm going to go into, I'm going to start when he's a little person. Do you have anything to add to the introductory part of this discussion? Um, Let me see. Any wide swath of something that you'd like to say before I, you know, have him be born and go through the story of what happened? No, he just, uh, I think the only, I don't know if you mentioned this or not, but um, it was a taxi driver that informed the police. Yeah, I've got that in here. So yeah, yeah we're totally going to talk about that. Dr. Shipman was not a doctor when he was born. I, I keep calling him Dr. Shipman. And isn't that, that's the, that's the funny bias. That's kind of why I'm joking around calling him Fred, because I just kind of want to like take him down a notch. That's my own bias towards wanting to like... Yeah, because his mother thought he was perfect. Make him not as important, you know? It's just hard. That's just, that's just me being, you know, thinking like, er, he's Fred. He's not Dr. Shipman. You just don't want to acknowledge that yeah. a doctor could be this despicable. So he was born on January 14th in 1946 in the sitting, uh, city of Nottingham, England. Um, he was born into a working class family, English family. His father was a lorry driver, which is a truck driver. And he was brought up in a council estate, which is basically public assistance housing uh, in the UK. And he was the second of three children. So a middle child, if that means anything to any of you. And Shipman's family was reportedly deeply religious. They were Methodist, actually. So as a boy, he was reportedly devoted to his mother, Vera. Uh, and the reports also state that he was the favorite child of his domineering mother, which allowed her to insist, instill a, a, like a sense of superiority in him. She doted on him. And the idea behind that came from a lot of the pictures that you see are him dressed up in fancy little man clothes. Mm-hmm. As like a four or five, six, seven, eight year old. He's, right. you know, dressed up in the fancy man clothes. Like he's going to be the man of the family at five. She had him on a a pedestal for sure. Oh my gosh. So unfortunately before Shipman was fully grown, she, his mother was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and throughout her care, Shipman reportedly witnessed, you know, firsthand the palliative effect that the doctors were giving her with the painkillers, notably morphine. So imagine your mother has lung cancer 
and she's in your home and you love her very much and you know, you're her favorite person. So she very much treats you better than pretty much anybody else is ever going to treat you. And she's dying and in the home she would be in pain. And, and the thing about those days was that you didn't always get the morphine when you needed it. It's not like being in a hospital. You, you, you know, they'd come when they could and give you another dose or what have you. So you can imagine that, you know, the mother died at 43. So you can imagine that, you know, in her early 40s, she's looking young and vigorous. And then now she's in bed with lung cancer and in extraordinary pain and stage lung cancer would be horrible breathing, breathing problems and coughing problems. And the morphine doesn't come enough. So he's witnessing a doctor coming into the home and being magic and like relieving and seeing his mother feel good for a little bit. And then also seeing her feel horrible. And then this doctor coming in and performing this, like what would have looked like magic, I'm sure to a little boy with this needle and this morphine and then learning it was morphine. That would be pretty profound to watch that, you know, to be able to ease someone's suffering, to be able to ease your mother's suffering. That's like a big deal. So she died at 43 in June of 1963, and Shipman was only 17 years old. Yeah, it, it just seems like too much of a coincidence that he would grow up to, you know, inject over 200 people with morphine mm-hmm. <laughs> as his uh, chosen 200. Yeah. Yeah, it's like just a little bit too much of a coincidence yeah. not to make a psychological connection between that yeah. and what he ended up doing. You know? Well, yeah, and they talk about that in the Born to Kill, where essentially he's just reliving the, those feelings of endorphins over and over and over by, you know, objectifying these older women. And these are women that he could also get away with doing this too because he would just falsify their medical records Mm -hmm. because his his mother was actually quite young so he couldn't do this to 43 year olds no he could certainly do it to and he he, my understanding is he also felt old people were sort of disposable and in the way and you know if he's going to relive this this situation over and over to get that same feeling or to somehow now become the new hero in the story Mm -hmm. whatever his fantasy was right elders are a great population um, to do that with if you're a serial killer because falsifying medical records for somebody who's 75 or 80 years old is probably quite easy to do, at least at that time. Yeah, I got away with it for a very long time, so we have to extrapolate that it was pretty easy to do, at least for some time. Kathy, just in case you want to know, dropped the name Born to Kill in there, which is a British true crime television series that in each episode, if you guys are interested, because maybe if you're listening to this, you would be, each episode is an in-depth look into the child informative years of serial killers. And there are seven seasons uh, and also, I think, a spinoff um, called Class of Evil, I think. But that aside, uh, Harold Shipman's actually the second episode from season one of this uh you know, not to be outdone because the third episode was Jeffrey Dahmer. So he's right up in there with with who the Brits see as uh, serial kill, killers to talk about. So anyway, go check that out. I'm sure it's widely available somewhere you can pay to get it, I imagine. Um, A lot of these are just on YouTube. Well, there you go. 
it was it's it's stated in a lot of different sources and 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 one of the things about this case that's it's also interesting is that you know he did not do he refused to talk to any mental health professionals after he was convicted and once he was in prison so we he was not a stereotypical and when we get to the end of this and we're talking in the next episode about like his full um kind of clinical picture i think one of the things we have to remember is that he refused to talk to any mental health professionals and he also refused to give any reason or any or talk about any of his trauma or any of the reasons why he did what he did, which is very different from a lot of the serial killers that we see that yeah. would like the public eye. That's right. Would like to tell you their, you know, write your book, write the book to tell you all about themselves. I mean, to the day he died, he was like, I don't understand what they want from me. Yeah. Exactly. So that's that's interesting. That's yeah. a little bit different than a lot of the people that we've spoken about. So I just want to like earmark mm-hmm. that for mm-hmm. further discussion. But so they talk about, you know, him becoming a doctor as a direct consequence of his mother's death. And so he elected to go to medical school. And now a lot of people would see that as a passion project, like a good thing, right? Like it motivated me to, to be who I am and mm-hmm. to pursue this life-saving career so he apparently failed the first entrance examination um but worked his way into studying medicine at the nearby leeds university some two years after his mother's death what i can say is that when he was what i do have read is that you know when he was in school like grade school and such some of the reports say he was good academically and then other reports say he wasn't good academically. So I'm not exactly sure who to believe, but I'm, I'm going to go with not so great academically just because I think he was very studious. Right. But not like an, an exceptional mind right out of the gate. Right. Like thing, mom right? called him brilliant. Right. thought well, he was so yeah. special, but I think he was, I think that that also fed his, then I have to do well in school and I have to put my, push myself. And I don't know if he was naturally intelligent. I don't think so. Just knowing the rest of the story, like I don't, it doesn't seem like that's the case, but he was also athletic. He was like the captain of the rugby team or something. He was uh, very much, he was a rugby player and an athlete. And, but also he was also known. Hmm, yeah. Here's the thing. He had this domineering mother, and so he had this sense of superiority mm-hmm. from a very early age. And you can imagine what that creates in your peer group. Oh, God. So it created someone who probably wasn't all that fun to be around. Nobody really likes to be with someone who's f- superior and a know-it-all all the time. Right. Or like, no, here's what the answer is, or here's what I think. Like, you mm-hmm. can imagine that sort of haughty mm-hmm. kind of attitude. And what? And then what does that create, at least in the kids that I know that are like that? It creates isolation. Mm-hmm. You don't have any friends. And then you're isolated, and so then you're a loner. Mm-hmm. And then people just think you're weird, mm-hmm. right? So that's that's the picture that I'm creating. And then he goes home and he's a star. And then he goes to school and he's being bullied most likely. Because right. think about it. He's wearing the fancy pants, right? He's right. got the fancy outfits his mom's putting in. Those are not congruent with what kids wear to school, even in that day and age. Right. He's haughty and know-it-all and probably doesn't have a sense of humor. Those two things kind of go together usually. Mm-hmm. And then he's a loner. He's isolated. Like, it's not a... But all, but all the while getting fed that he is yes. he is better and that's probably why kids don't understand him exactly so it justifies and it doesn't give him any reason to want to connect because it's like well they, i'm just i'm just better than them they don't get me they don't understand me mm-hmm. how many times have we heard that mm-hmm. oh lord have mercy um 
So he does finally get into medical school and he goes to Leeds University. And in his first year of medical school, he meets uh, Primrose Oxtoby, who is quote unquote a farmer's daughter or what have you, which is some kind of pejorative term they used for perhaps a working class young lady. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't really like that phrase, a farmer's daughter. I mean, maybe he really was a farmer, but it yeah. does have that little, I don't know. It's kind of a put down. Like she was plain or something. I don't know. And that's all she was. She was just a farmer's daughter. Yeah, right. Like it's a total put down. But anyway, she does end up being a little bit, mm, we're not sure of her psychology either, as you'll see. So she gets pregnant pretty quickly, like a few months in. And as was commiserate with the time, they got married because of that. So he was a father to be at, well, like a freshman in college, which may or may not have been like out of line for the time. I'm not sure. But also you have to think as a young doctor in that time and place and culture, you wanted to be married and have children. It was part of the image. So do I really think he was in love with her and fell in love and wanted to have kids from some sort of a pure space, not from what I know of the rest of his life. I can't go there. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like it was part of the image. Mm -hmm. Like, Oh, you're knocked up and it's time to get married. Like, it's just like a cultural norm Mm -hmm. that was going and the doctors, all of the people around him would have been doing the same thing. And so it would have been like, Oh, I want to fit in. Right. Right. Cause he's never fit in. He's been bullied. He's never fit in. So important. Uh, so, They eventually had a total of four children and were perceived as sort of an average family. So Mm -hmm. he was just creating another, you know, again, an image of normalcy. So he graduates from Leeds University in 1970 and he begins a career in the small town of Pontefract. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not pronouncing that correctly. In West Yorkshire, England. In 1974, he joins a medical practice in Todd Morden, which is in the Calder Valley in West Yorkshire. And by 1975, he's convicted of forging prescriptions to feed his reliance on pain, the painkiller Pethidin, which is a synthetic opioid uh, like morphine, basically. So very quickly, he's got a charge. Now, this charge didn't come out until there was a trial. Mm Mm-hmm. Like nobody really knew about that because he he had kept his image pretty pretty tight in the community. Well, he'd been given chances. I mean, yes. you know, he was practicing, and they knew that he was he had had this history, and all he had to say was, you know, I'm sober now, and they give him this other chance because he was such a such a likable. I mean, this is a guy that if you were to recommend to your family, and they would go in and have a doctor's appointment. Oh, he's so lovely. Mm -hmm. Not in like, you know, when we talked about Christopher Dench last time, he just looks unapproachable and horrific. And this guy was like the family MD. I mean, people like loved him. Yeah. Like a stereotypically, a more stereotypical serial killer that we see that gets famous. That's right. We often talk about on the show, the disorganized and the organized, and we kind of like pile them a little bit. Mm -hmm. This guy is organized. Yes, he he had the whole like charm and and uh, persona down mm-hmm. where he didn't give anybody any reason to suspect where right. Christopher Dunch 
many people were like out very fast (laughs) hello yeah this guy's psycho this guy went decades and i think i even said it in the episodes like a ramirez was like a dench like i just like fast and flamed out fast and got really rageful and horrible real fast like no mask of sanity at all (laughs) this guy was incredibly he's our he's our primary Mm -hmm. guy Yeah, yeah for sure um so again, he was convicted in 1975 of forging prescriptions to feed his painkiller addiction. So um, it's it's not also not a stretch that he would have watched what happened to his mom and seen the relief that that she got, and then when he had ready availability of something like morphine, that he would get addicted to it. Like that just makes logical sense to me obviously psychology is more complicated than that but it does seem sort of on the nose that he he does a lot of things that are a bit on the nose to me Mm -hmm. his addiction had actually gotten so bad that and so debilitating that his wife had actually had to drive him to see patients and such so Mm -hmm. you know she was she she was aware and we believe that this may have been the first time that his he had killed anybody uh, on purpose. We don't know, of course, because mm-hmm. he didn't speak, but from the audits and the inquiries and everything, looking back, it looks like very quickly he started to kill. So, <sighs> yeah, yeah. Shipman resigned from the Todd Morton Medical Center after he was uh, convicted of forging prescription. He resigned from his job to, and was told to and made to attend a drug rehabilitation program. But the authorities only issued him a warning and a fine and he was able to keep his medical license. Now, one could judge that harshly, of course, because a lot of people died because he kept his medical license. But that's pretty that's pretty regular stuff. If you were, if Kathy or I, you know, we, we answer to a board as well with our licensure or any doctor, you know, that gets addicted to any kind of anything, you know, there's a process, there's a fair and equitable process and we don't see addiction as something you can't recover from. And so doctors and psychologists, et cetera, are people too. And so they go to treatment they get better. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they get fined. They, you know, the fine would be a lot larger these days. Um, For our profession, a lot of times it's, you have to go back under supervision. You have to have a supervisor again, because we, we are licensed. And so we don't have to have a supervisor Mm -hmm. that, that monitors all our cases and their licenses on the line. So you'd go back under supervision a lot of times or be a fine. You'd have some other, things so that would have been pretty standard Mm -hmm. even though you know the revisionistic history would be like oh too bad they didn't take his medical license right but i don't know i feel like a guy like that would have found a different way for sure you know he'd become a holistic doctor or something and not had practice without a license that's right would have just been that would not have stopped him no i don't think so no Mm -mm. Um, but i did want to kind of mention that because i know people would be like oh they should have taken his license you know but that's not really the way it works. And at that time, like you said, at that time, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Shipman took on, so after all of that, Shipman took on a new position at the Donnybrook Medical Center in Hyde, Great Manchester, where uh, he was to work for more than 20 years. He, the quotes that I read were like that he ingratiated himself as a hardworking doctor who enjoyed the trust of patients and colleagues alike, although he had a reputation for arrogance among the junior staff. So, Think about it, right? Mom instills this sense of entitlement and the loss of his mother then because there was a complicated grief there too because if the only person that sees you as special dies, that's 
that's going to cause something because no one else is going to look at you the same way and you're not going to get mirrored in your life the way you need to you, the way you wanted to be mirrored with your mom. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be huge by the time he's 17. Then he's bullied. He doesn't, you know, all these, nobody understands him. He's too special, you know, difficult. He gets caught, you know, he's got an addiction now. So he's got an addiction personality working there too. And then all these people say, oh, hardworking doctor, all of this. But it's like, he was, there's also reports of him being a total know-it-all in the, you know, and arguing and being really unlikable in so many ways. So I, I'm confused by all of these, like, well, he was so likable. I, I, blah, I think, blah, blah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know who's saying he's, he's not likable, but I would imagine that, um, just like when you're working with anybody who's a, a, a sociopath or a narcissist or psychopath or whatever is to the people he needs to believe in him, he's going to be one person, but that mask is going to drop at times if people are in his way or people are putting up stumbling blocks. And I would imagine that staff and other people could probably speak to that, but his patients probably not. Yeah. 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 And that comes up a couple more times too. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it totally makes sense. There is this like Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing that happens. So the truth was that during this period, you know, Shipman was using his cover as a family doctor to secretly murder scores of vulnerable patients who were in his care. I mean, this is really when it was starting. And um, he, he administered lethal doses of diamorphine, killing his patients in a matter of minutes. And the you know, he targeted predominantly older women, as we've said, to cover his tracks. And he wrote up the deaths as occurring as a result of underlying health conditions associated with, with old age, which was often wrong and devious, et cetera. And it's interesting because there, you know, you can find a list of his, of his victims, the 15 that he was convicted for. And then the 215 that they found, you know, were killed. And when you look at the list, it's, it's interesting because you guys aren't looking at the list. I just want to say that, you know, it starts at 1975 and there's like one and then 1978, there's like four and then two and then skip a year. You know, it was just very methodical and I'm sure he like could find one and then not find another for a while. Or maybe he had a kid that year and so the mm-hmm. things were going on or maybe he felt good about himself for a while or something, or maybe there just wasn't a victimology, but then you hit like 1984 mm-hmm. and it starts to be 10, 12, etc. And then there are, again, there are like 1990 through 1993. There's very few, you know, there were these periods of time and I'm sure if one tracked it, there would be reasons for that. But then 193 hits and it's like 15 and you know, it just starts to escalate, escalate, escalate. And by the time you hit 1995, 1996, you're up in like 25, 30 people a year. Right. So, and then by the time he's uh, convicted and goes, you know, into the, into prison for good it by 1998 he's had a good four solid years of double digit you know killings all yeah. year long so it's just interesting to look at the the trajectory of that because it does escalate which i thought was interesting and i just you know for the narcissism in it it's like he just gets more and more dilute you know confident and yeah and he's getting away with it so like yeah i could just do this more like i'm yep. a god yeah <laughs> for sure I don't, I don't need to i'll just keep killing people it's fine no one cares yep. <laughs> 
I guess he did occasionally come under scrutiny uh, in 1985. Uh, a number of his colleagues uh, were disturbed to find similarities in his the deaths, the death numbers, right? So he starts to have, that's like I said, he starts to have more like 10 or so, you know, it starts to just get more. And the serial killer picture starts to emerge. Most of his victims are fully clothed and usually sitting up or reclining on a settee in the living room with the door open. That's mm-hmm. how people would find them. And so like posed basically, which is really disturbing. Yep. And and like families would say, "Oh, that's interesting. My mother never sat in that chair or <laughs> my mother never wore that dress." Right. So you're you realizing that he like killed them and then dressed them and then posed them. It's so creepy. Which is so much in line with, you know, if we're writing a movie, it's just in line with his mom and yeah. like what she may have been this wearing. This is Norman or, Bates. It totally is. It's so creepy. I mean, he's a total sociopath. <laughs> I know. It's just awful. It's just awful. Um, and I'm laughing because it's so awful, not because it's funny. I mean, he really, I mean, I know we're not going to talk about diagnosis till next time, but it's like, this is, this is your... Norman Bates, your delusional, Oedipal, sociopathic kind of, you know, even all the way to the point to the end where he didn't do any of this out of any sort of satisfaction uh, uh, regarding the victim. Like he wasn't really doing anything to them. Um, He was killing them, but just to relive and recreate his mother's death. It was so Mm -hmm. much. It was like when we look at Ed Gein, right? Right. It, it was it really about these women or was it that he was really just trying to please his mother? Yeah. You know, and that's how I see this guy. It's like these totally. women were just pawns, but he wasn't getting any sort of sexual sadism or satisfaction. This was just like reliving that endorphin over and over and over. Yeah. I think that would absolutely, there's a great argument for that being the primary thing yeah. that's happening for him. I think, you know, when we, in the next uh, couple of discussions that we have about this, like, I really feel like there's definitely, as always, there's layers to it for sure. And yeah. I actually do think there was some satisfaction, but satisfaction for different reasons. But yeah, I, I, I think he was, I think when you, when you do this, when you go, uh, when you go kind of through the childhood like that, and mm-hmm. then you look at what he did, I think that's the way, just like we've done with Manson and Bundy, et cetera. Like, I think that is the way to see how it all comes together in a puzzle piece because it's so clear when you see that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just have a couple more things to say about that. And then we will, we'll take a break until next time and continue on with this story because it's, it's bigger than I originally yeah, he's, thought. He's pretty fascinating. <laughs> and it's the this this case is actually the reason why I said to Kathy, like, we should do a doctors who kill. Like everybody yeah. does that, but I feel like we we could get into that and have good conversations. And this is the guy that I wanted to start with. We ended up starting with Dunch, which I thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. But so this one's gonna be a little bit longer, two or three episodes, because it's I mean He's a total psychopath serial killer. 20 years. Like, I never even knew about this guy. Know, most people don't. I hadn't really known about him either. It's amazing. So let me just say a couple more things before we before we knock off for the day. Um, so 
uh, like I was saying, he did occasionally come under scrutiny and like his colleagues were starting to like a lot of your people die was kind of the idea. And that eventually catches up with you. Uh, So there was a covert investigation that was that Shipman was actually cleared of stuff, but they covertly were very suspicious of him and looking into his cases, but ultimately they were cleared because the records were in order. Of course, what they realized years later was that he was altering all the paperwork to avoid detection. Of course. And so what do we, what do we know from that for the future? He's not insane because he knows, (laughs) he knows what he's doing. He knows enough to cover it up. So like, he didn't feel like he was being threatened. He didn't, yeah, no, he, he didn't think these women were, something that they weren't no that was all there was so much not that planning is entirely it's not mutually exclusive with somebody not being found insane but i mean it was very intentional yes yes and as kathy is always talking about in her forensic evaluations you know knowing what right and wrong and intentionally covering up yeah or, or if you didn't know it was right or wrong, uh, you know, th- right. didn't know that what you were doing was actually harming somebody. And he clearly did. He so. clearly did. And it was part of why he was doing it. Right. So that's that's our show for today. So next time we're going to go into uh, more of the detection, how he ultimately got detected and what was happening and kind of how that investigation played out, as well as the trial, his death and and some other stuff. So. We, we will keep talking about Dr. Shipman because he had a long career, over 20 years of killing people, over 200 deaths are attributed to him. So there's a lot to, to chat about. But that's the beginning of the case in his childhood. So thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please come back and listen to our Shrink Chat show on Friday and then tune in next week for the next installment of this. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. Please check out our Patreon page, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We'd love to engage with you as part of our community. Please take a moment to leave us a comment on any of our social media. Thank you so much for listening. And once again, sleep safe.